0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and it's lovely to have your company. Coming up soon, what else? The US presidential election will have two views. Plus, a little later, how Emmanuel Macron defends press freedoms in secular France in the face of the Islamist challenge.
2: The concern that President Macron has is that this uh, extreme minority uh, has such a powerful hold on some young people that even if it's a minority, that you have to take it very seriously.
1: Stay tuned for my chat with Sophie Petter. She's Emmanuel Macron's biographer. But first, an extraordinary US presidential election, still too close to call or to concede. It's left America and the world in a state of political uncertainty. Now, it could be days before the presidential election is determined. However, one thing's clear. America, no matter who wins, is bitterly divided. Eleanor Clift from the Daily Beast in Washington has been a veteran panelist on the McLaughlin Group. Eleanor, thanks for being back on ABC Radio. Happy to be with you. Now, given a pandemic that has killed more than 230,000 Americans, a virus-induced economic downturn, a racial crisis sparked by the killing of George Floyd back in May, and Trump's depressing first state debate performance it horrified the world. Given all of that, how do you account for such a tight election contest?
0: Well, you could add into that a number of pollsters and pundits who predicted healthy 10-point leads for uh, Vice President Biden nationally. And comfortable leads in most of the battleground states. So a lot of people in this country are thinking, you know, what what happened to change the directory that seemed to be the direction that this contest seemed to be going? How do I account for it? You, you answered uh, the question in your question to me. We are a very divided uh, country. It looks at this point like uh, Vice President Biden is, is going to, to win but by a much closer margin uh, than, you would, than you would expect uh, when he's going uh, when he's challenging a president facing multiple crises. But the last incumbent president that was uh, uh, defeated after uh, one term was George H.W. Bush, and that was 1992, 30 years ago. So I think that uh, Americans are, are loath to fire a president unless they are really confident in the, in the opposition. And uh, I think the, uh, the Democrats um, made a, a good case and a good enough case, I think, to win, but not by the mandate that they were expecting.
1: Yes, when you think about uh, first-term presidents over the past century, you think of Herbert Hoover. In 1932, he faced the Great Depression. You think of Jimmy Carter. In 1980, he faced the Iran hostage crisis and economic stagflation. And then, of course, as you say, George H.W. Bush in 1992, he faced a recession. So clearly, one-term presidents go down because of great crises. Now, the race is very tight, Illinois. Trump wants the Supreme Court to intervene. His campaign has sued Michigan to stop the vote count. How does that work?
0: Well, the Supreme Court got involved in a close election in 2000, but that was to stop a recount. Uh, the notion that the president could go uh, into a state court or a federal court to stop a count, which is a, a, a count a counting of legitimate ballots. These are not new ballots that are being cast. Uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, that he's not on strong legal grounds at all. But I expect that he will challenge the vote in a number of places. But in Wisconsin, for example, he's talking about uh, asking for a recount there, but you can't even ask for a recount until 10 days after the race has been certified and the original count hasn't even finished. And part of this problem here is that we've become accustomed to elections being declared on election day or a day after, or we're, we're certain the direction it's going. These races are close enough, and because there are millions more of write-in ballots because of the pandemic, and those ballots need to be counted, and it takes time. And Republican legislatures in three key states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and mich- Michigan, also uh, resisted efforts to change the rules so that they could begin to process mail-in ballots as they came in, instead of mm. having to wait until election day to even open them. So the Republicans have, they, they've tried to sow chaos here, more chaos than uh, is
1: necessary. Well, what that brings me to my next question. What do you think Trump will do if the vote continues, uh, which seems logical, and Biden is the ultimate victor?
0: He will have to leave office. I mean, I think he can <laughs> continue to... Uh, file lawsuits but you know the Supreme Court is not going to interview intervene in a state election without good grounds and I don't see any and um, he'll be escorted out of out of the office it's difficult to me to imagine him sitting in a limo and driving to Capitol Hill to hear uh Biden take the, take the oath and sit on the, on the stage and listen to the inaugural speech. So your question is, is oh. well taken. I mean, none of us are yeah. quite sure, you know, what he's going to do.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, that brings me to this question. Assuming you're right about President Biden, how will it be possible for him, uh, particularly if the Republicans keep the Senate, which seems more than likely, at least for the next two years, how is it possible for a uh, President Biden to govern the U.S.? when it's more divided along ideological and partisan lines than it's ever been since probably, what, the Civil War?
0: I think it's very difficult, but I can make one try at an optimistic outcome. The uh, Senate uh, leader is Mitch McConnell, and he vowed to make Barack Obama a one-term president. He could do the same for uh, Mr. Biden, although Mr. Biden has effectively said that's probably all he'll, he'll serve anyway. Uh, but this will be Mitch McConnell's last term. He's uh, He will, would be 84 in six years. He's unlikely to run again. He was reelected this week. And he may see the capstone on his career is uh, making deals with uh, a Democratic president on the issues challenging the country. The two men know each other. They've known each other for 30 years. And there were key deals made during the Obama Uh, Biden administration, and they were made between Vice President Biden and Senate Leader Mitch McConnell. So that's the optimistic view (laughs) that he'll he'll put country over party since it's his last term, and it would be a a great capstone on his career. That's what I'm rooting for.
1: Finally, Illinois, Arizona—it's gone Republican in every election since 1996. But Trump looks like he's going to lose Arizona. Uh, This, of course, was the home state of the late John McCain, whom Trump derided as not a war hero because he got captured and ultimately abused for five years by the Vietnamese communists. What do you think the significance of that is?
0: Oh, that's the uh, growing Latino vote. And it's interesting because uh, President Trump did very well with uh, the, the, the Latin community, which is very diverse in Florida. But in Arizona, he and uh, this infamous uh, sheriff Arpeo—you uh, probably, have, you and your listeners have probably never heard of him—but you know he was very uh, critical and demeaning of uh, Hispanic people, and they basically turned uh, the, the Hispanics in the state against the Republican uh, Party, uh, and uh, that's a great loss to the party. But it's 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 emblematic of the. Inability of the Republican Party writ large to recognize a changing America, a diversifying America that's becoming more brown and black. So it's 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 a lot of the uh, the changeover in Arizona has to do with the growth of the Latino community.
1: Eleanor, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio again. Thank you, Eleanor Cliff from the Daily Beast in Washington.
0: This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer.
2: Making sense of Australia's place in the world.
1: Now to my next guest, Henry Olsen. He's a Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre. Now, Henry was among many seasoned observers of American politics, including, by the way, myself, who predicted a comfortable win for Vice President Joe Biden. But this is the caveat, quote, "...unless we experience the greatest polling failure in modern history." Henry, welcome back to RN.
3: (laughs) Thank you for having me on. So
1: is that it? Is that the explanation? The the greatest polling failure in modern history?
3: Pretty much. Um, If you take a look at uh, all but the, what I call MAGA polls, uh, people who were saying that they had the secret sauce that would show that there was a more pro-Trump electorate, every public pollster was off significantly every almost every private pollster was off significantly as well that campaign polls were showing a much stronger democratic night than was expected and i think what happened was pollsters just missed this much as they missed your election in 2019
1: yeah but look uh, it's just extraordinary if you look at wisconsin which was on a knife edge on election night Democrats have just eked out a victory after all the counting's taken place. Now, Wisconsin, just a fortnight, Washington Post ABC poll had a 15, 16 point lead to Joe Biden. I mean, it's extraordinary. How could you get it so wrong?
3: Uh, You would have to ask them. The only way you can get it so wrong is if you're modeling the electorate in a massively problematic way, or if you just had one of those one in 20 polls that are supposed to be outside the confidence of error. The problem is there were a lot of 1 in 20 polls outside the confidence of error, both in the state and at the national level, for me to believe that's what's going on. I think there was a massive electorate modeling problem. Plus, I think the MAGA pollsters are somewhat right that there is a shy Trump effect in presidential years.
1: Well, let's talk about this. This is the argument, shy Trump voter, that, that the raw polling figures clearly overstated the support for Biden, just as they did for Hillary Clinton four years ago. And and the argument here is some people are ashamed of admitting that they would vote for Donald Trump. And you think that's a plausible observation still four years after this original phenomena? <laughs>
3: You know, I think it's difficult to understand without being here is that we have gone through four years of relentless daily 24-7 attacks on the president. I don't know how many people lied to pollsters, but I can believe that there are people who are deeply Republican but not terribly political junkies who just said to heck with it and didn't answer any calls. And I think that more than lying is the likely Answer. And that's, in fact, what the Trafalgar owner basically implied is that there's a certain number of people who can't be bothered with a typical five to 18 minute poll mm. on the phone. And he has pioneered new texting methods that only ask them to respond to two or three questions. He might have hit something and be his innovation might have uncovered those people
1: yeah and of course the uh, the proliferation of uh, mobile phones or cell phones that makes it more complicated too i suppose but as you know for years british pollsters have had to deal with the shy tory factor where people fear being bullied out of admitting that they're conservative voters british conservative voters because they believe conservatism is somehow associated with selfishness or just being generally old-fashioned uh, we saw that in a way play out with brexit uh, four years ago henry And as you mentioned before, you could argue we saw that with the quiet Australians who supported Scott Morrison and, of course, defied all the pollsters and the pundits in the lead up to our own election. Can we ever believe the polls again?
3: Uh, You know, I think most of the time polls are right, but I think we just have to engage in a lot more skepticism. For me, my gut was telling me this is going to be closer than the polls are telling me. I resisted that. There was evidence that there were regional polling error effects that were consistent that would have brought Trump uh, in more in line in the Midwest and suggested he might win North Carolina, Florida, and Georgia. I resisted adjusting for those. I'm not going to make that mistake in 2022. I just think the pollsters have systematic errors and that there is a segment of the Republican electorate that simply won't answer polls.
1: Now, you also expected the Republicans to lose the Senate, but that now seems highly unlikely. The Republicans will probably hold the Senate. They've even picked up seats in the House of Representatives, contrary to the conventional wisdom. Now, presuming that Biden wins the final votes in the battleground states and manages to win enough Electoral College votes to just win the White House, uh, does a Republican Senate, uh, taken together with the nature of this very close election, Does that mean that a President Biden is the lamest of lame ducks, at least for the next two years?
3: It depends how President Biden, should he be President Biden, chooses to address that new reality. If he chooses to address it by governing as the voice of the Democratic Party, then he is the lamest of lame ducks as far as anything uh, requiring legislation. If he chooses to do what he said he would do, which is be a national unifier, It will mean angering the Democratic left, but there's possibility. One thing I should note for your listeners is that just in the last hour, we have learned that there are more ballots outstanding in Arizona than the AP and the Edison Research Consortium thought there were last night. I was getting attacked on Twitter saying that there should be a million votes outstanding um, when they were saying there were only 500,000. Well, now we know that as of last night, there were a million votes outstanding and that President Trump, if he wins 57 percent of the 600,000 that have yet to be counted of that million, he will win Arizona. And so Wow, I think that is intriguing. Possibility, yeah, possibility, not a likelihood. But right now, if President Trump does win 57 percent of those votes and he was winning 64 percent of the first 400,000, first few hundred thousand that were cast, if he wins Arizona and he holds on in Pennsylvania, he is the president elect.
1: Finally, Henry Olsen, let me ask you what I asked our earlier guest, Eleanor Clift. How will it be possible for a President Biden or a President Trump, if he wins, how will it be possible for either of them to govern the US when it is more divided along ideological and partisan lines than it's ever been since the Civil War?
3: The only way to do it is to try and tackle those questions and create a new consensus. I think there are Americans who want to see both sides have some aspect of a settlement. They don't want to see gay people and transgender people suppressed. They don't want to see religion suppressed. They want to see more government action. They don't want socialism. They want to see an America that is active and engaged in the world. And they don't want to see us having our lunch handed to us by uh, allies who won't pay their fair share for defense, which of course, Australia is one that pays its fair share. Or by multilateral trading partners that cheat. You get to that center ground and be willing to take on your party's hardliners, I think you'll see the possibility of governing the country. But if you're not willing to do it, then we'll just dig in. We'll become more partisan, more polarized, and it will be much, much worse for the United States in the future.
1: Henry, thanks so much for being with us again on ABC Radio National.
3: Thank you for having me back.
1: Henry Olsen is a Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre.
0: This is Between the Lines with Tom
1: Switzer. Now to a different subject. In recent weeks, France has been rocked by several terror attacks, stabbings in a church in Nice, a knife attack outside the former office of the Charlie Hebdo magazine, as well, and this is especially disturbing, a beheading of a history school teacher who displayed caricatures of Muhammad in a lesson on free speech. Now, the assassin then posted a photo of the decapitated head on social media and told Macron he had killed, quote, one of your hell dogs who dared to denigrate Muhammad. Now, these incidents have shocked France and the world. To hear more about this controversy and how its president, Emmanuel Macron, is handling all this, let's welcome back to the show, Sophie Petter. She's the Paris correspondent for The Economist magazine and author of Revolution Francaise, Emmanuel Macron, and the quest to reinvent a nation. Sophie, welcome back to ABC Radio National.
2: Thanks, Tom. It's a real pleasure to talk to you again.
1: Lovely to have you. Now, how is Macron combating the rise of Islamism?
2: Well, it's interesting. He actually decided to sort of talk about this before the recent series of terrorist attacks. And what he's trying to do, I think, is uh, counter this idea of what he calls Islamist separatism. And by this, he means that increasingly there's a sort of counter society uh, that is emerging where uh, children are increasingly being educated in, you know, Quranic schools or uh, radical and radical ideology is being spread in ways that actually can create a dangerous uh, situation, and if not a sort of fertile ground for recruitment to violence. And I think that, you know, in the past, his view was, you know, that France has sort of tolerated what this form of separatism, but that actually after these most recent terrorist attacks, there's a feeling that there's, they, these soft signs are actually hiding something far more sinister and that France needs to, to clamp down to stop the teaching of um, homeschooling. Parents were using homeschooling as a pretext for, for Quranic education. And, and some of the associations that are seen as a sort of spreading radical ideology rather than doing what they uh, are purporting to do, which is often, you know, self-help or aid groups. Um, So it's it's really a a clampdown on any of these soft signs of Islamism.
1: Now, the French, of course, take great pride in their republican, secular, liberal values. I mean, to what extent do Muslims living in France, to what extent do they reject those values?
2: I would say the vast majority don't reject them at all. I mean this is one of the mm. difficulties trying to explain the situation in France is that you know the vast majority of French Muslims probably don't even think of themselves in those terms you know they're French first they have a background with often a sort of Muslim culture they may not even be uh, practicing uh, or even believing but they there is a complete an integration of, uh, of the vast majority of, of of Muslims what we're talking about is an as an extreme it's a minority but I think that the concern that president Macron has is that this uh, extreme minority, uh, has such a powerful hold or a, an ability to have such a powerful hold on some young people, especially with the power of social media and the way you, that uh, you can recruit people to, to, to extremism, that, that even if it's a minority, that you have to take it very seriously.
1: Yeah, well, you've written in The Economist that France's tolerance for ridiculing religion, it's often difficult for outsiders to understand. How so? <laughs>
2: Well, I think it is because the French have this model that really isn't replicated anywhere else in the world. And it's uh, it doesn't even have a, a, an English term for it. They they call it laïcité. And we sometimes translate that as secularism, but that's also often misunderstood. It, it basically emerged in the uh, the turn of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, as part of a struggle at that time against the Catholic Church. It was a struggle with clerics. And it was a struggle to wrest control of public institutions, especially schools, actually, from the Catholic Church. And it so it's entrenched in law in 1905, the separation of church and state, so of religion and public affairs. And it also protected, and this is the bit that people don't sometimes understand, it protected the right to believe as well as uh, the right not to believe. So it... It is misunderstood, I think, because people who seek to sort of caricature this model see it as either a form almost of sort of state atheism, you know, like an anti-religious creed, or as Islamophobic, because if there's any sort of confrontation between the public authorities today and a religion, it's no longer Catholicism. It tends on the whole to be forms of Islam or Islamism, rather, and I think that's difficult to understand
1: sometimes. Yeah, talking about being misunderstood, Macron has been accused of cynically chasing the far right vote, but of course he has specifically rejected the anti-immigrant, anti-Islam mantra of Marine Le Pen, who of course represents France's far right. Meanwhile, Macron here with his actions and uh, his speeches has been praised by prominent Western conservatives such as the Wall Street Journal editorial page, Australia's Alan Jones, how has the the French left responded to Macron's defence of really Western enlightenment?
2: Well, again, it's interesting because it's not quite how you would imagine. In France, this belief in the in the secular model, this this model of laïcité that we were talking about, is actually mm. it's cross party, and some of the most fervent defenders of the model. Uh, and of keeping religion out of public life are actually on the left. Uh, if you remember back to Manuel Valls, who was a prime minister, socialist prime minister of France, he was one of the, the, the strongest advocates of uh, of, of defending uh, free speech, the right to blaspheme, uh, and keeping religion out of out of public life. So it really isn't just a sort of far right or even a conservative. Um, discourse, it's something that is found very much uh, in the mainstream left-wing thinking in France. And that, I think, again, is one of the elements of this that makes it quite difficult sometimes to to read French politics, because it is not just a sort of cynical chase for the for the far right vote when you when you stand up and you defend um, policies which look as if they're chasing uh, or, or, or making uh, making life more difficult for Muslims in France. It's actually something that is very much defended on the basis of of universalist values, the Enlightenment principles and the secular principles under the French Republic on the left as well.
1: My guest is Sophie Petter from The Economist in Paris, and we're chatting about uh, Macron and France. And now's as good a time as any is to acknowledge that uh, France has experienced plenty of Islamist terror attacks. Who can forget the 2015 Paris attacks that killed, I think it was about 130, or the 2016 Nice truck attack that claimed 86 lives. Now, of course, Sophie, you interviewed Macron, we've interviewed him several times, but about a year ago, I think you interviewed him when he said to you, and this was very famous, uh, NATO is brain dead. That's what he told you. Now, the Turkish president Erdogan has slammed Macron's crackdown of Islamists in France. France and Turkey are NATO allies. What's the upshot of all this?
2: Well, I think what we're looking at is really a, um, uh, it's almost a sort of outright uh, confrontation between the French president and Erdogan in in, in Turkey. Uh, it's certainly hardened after, it was one of the reasons that Macron made the comment that he did um, after Turkey uh, unilaterally, Turkey, which is a member of NATO, after all, a fellow NATO NATO member alongside France and the United States, unilaterally decided to uh, withdraw troops and expose the Kurds in Syria a, a year ago. But it's really got... developed into something much more conflictual and sort of directly confrontational between France and Turkey in, for example, the Eastern Mediterranean, where France has had to send or decided rather to send a frigate to support Greece after some incursions by Turks uh, into Greek waters. So there you have, again, a sort of form of confrontation literally almost happening in the Eastern Mediterranean between and among NATO members. And I think it's part of Macron, Macron would see it as part of uh, Erdogan's uh, attempts to assert, assert himself as you know, the leader of uh, a, a form of Islam in this part of the world. And that collides directly with Macron's d- attempts to defend um, a sort of secular model and a secular France and freedom of speech. Um, from any att- for, 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 from exactly what Erdogan seems to represent. So we're looking at a pretty uh, difficult time for relations between Turkey and France and mm. uh, certainly within NATO itself, the relations haven't improved at all and the issues mm. that Macron spoke about in that interview that you referred to, Tom, uh, a year ago, I think he would say are still there to get today.
1: <laughs> Sophie, to be continued, it's great to have you back on ABC Radio National.
2: It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much.
1: Sophie Petter is the Paris Bureau Chief for The Economist magazine and biographer of Emmanuel Macron. Well, that's all from us this week on Between the Lines. It's always great to have you company. Now, remember, if you want to hear the episode again, you can always hear us via your ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our program page at abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts. Thanks again for joining us today and I look forward to your company next week.